Hi, and welcome back to the Itchy Podcast. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the Managing Editor for Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, or Itchy. Itchy is the official journal for the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. In each episode of the Itchy Podcast, we hear from authors of articles recently published in the journal. Today's episode is the second of a two-part series featuring articles from the August 2019 issue. That's volume 39, issue 8. First up, Jacina McGregor talks about her study, which measured the incidence of potentially hospital-acquired community-onset UTIs in a retrospective cohort of hospitalized patients. Then, Weston Branch Elliman shares with us the results of a retrospective cohort study of multiple VA centers that looked at the association between a prevention bundle and cardiac device infections. Then, Jackson Mazuza talks about his article, Implementation of a Clostridioides Difficile Prevention Bundle, Understanding Common, Unique, and Conflicting Work System Barriers and Facilitators for Subprocess Design. And lastly, Kyle Rizzo joins us to talk about his study, which aimed to evaluate the Orange County CDI Prevention Collaborative's effect on rates of CDI in acute care hospitals in Orange County, California. After listening, please be sure to go to the August issue to read the full articles discussed in this episode. Now let's get started. Joining us now is Justina McGregor, one of the authors of the article, Healthcare-Associated Urinary Tract Infections with Onset Post-Hospital Discharge. Dr. McGregor, would you introduce yourself to our listeners and then tell us a little bit of the background for this study? Hi, my name is Jacina McGregor. I am an epidemiologist and conduct research in pharmacoepidemiology, antibiotic resistance, and antimicrobial stewardship at the Oregon State University, Oregon Health and Science University College Pharmacy. This paper that we're talking about today focuses on urinary tract infections and specifically healthcare-associated urinary tract infections that may have an onset post-hospital discharge. So as I'm sure the itchy readership is aware, Healthcare-associated infections in the United States, uh, surveillance is largely focused on the hospital admission, and we would assume, theoretically, that the risk of infection onset follows some function over time and doesn't just go to zero right after discharge. So that was the theoretical underpinning for us undergoing this research project, is we wanted to follow up with patients post-discharge and track the onset of new urinary tract infections that may be attributable to their healthcare exposure. And so tell us a little bit about what you did in this study and what you found. Yes, so the study was conducted at Oregon Health and Science University among hospitalized patients who have their primary care provider as part of the Oregon Health and Science University um, family care community. And so we identified a cohort of patients who had been admitted to OHSU hospital between May 2009 and December 2011. We excluded anybody who had a community-associated urinary tract infection that had an onset right in the beginning of their admission period in the first 48 hours. We also identified people who had a urinary tract infection during the 48 hours to discharge period, which we would assume would be at a healthcare-associated UTI. And those folks were excluded from our primary analysis. However, we tabulated their, their existence so that we could compare them later on um, for descriptive purposes. 
So we considered the healthcare exposure, the hospitalization, as the exposure of interest. We then followed the patients for 30 days post-discharge using their health record data to identify new cases of potentially hospital-associated but community-onset urinary tract infections. So this means as we looked for any outpatient or subsequent inpatient encounters occurring post-discharge from the index hospitalization period. And because these patients were patients with a PCP at the OHSU healthcare system, they are more likely to be followed, which is why we limited to that population of interest. And then we measured what the incidence of hospital-associated but community-onset urinary tract infections were. So these are the infections post-discharge. And can you tell us a little bit about your findings? Yes. So we started with identifying a cohort of 3,617 patients. We excluded 309 for prior UTI history and identified 3,308 patients overall who at risk during their index admission for any healthcare-associated UTI. During their index admission, we identified 35 patients who had a UTI during the index admission, so they were not at risk for our primary outcome of interest, which was the post-discharge UTI, or what we like to call the healthcare-associated community-onset UTI. We identified 3,052 patients who were at risk for healthcare-associated community-onset UTI, meaning the UTI onset post-discharge, and of those, 91 incident cases. Thus, overall, among the patients at risk for any kind of healthcare-associated UTI, there was an incidence of 10.6 per 1,000 patients during the hospital admission, and post-discharge, there was an incidence of 29.8 per 1,000 patients. This means that among healthcare-associated UTIs, 72.2% occurred after discharge. We performed a Kaplan-Meier survival curve to better understand the relationship between time post-discharge and UTI diagnosis, and found that the rate of UTI diagnosis was fairly constant across the 30-day period. This means there was no clear distinction where we could say that based on time alone, there was a higher rate post-discharge that could be attributable more to healthcare-associated exposures. Additionally, we looked at what the culture results were for those UTI patients with their onset post-discharge and noticed that approximately 43% of patients overall had an E. coli identified in their culture. This is similar to what we tend to observe in most healthcare-associated UTIs where the frequency of E. coli is less and other pathogens are more frequent. In contrast, in community-onset infections and community-associated infections, we typically see E. coli as the primary contributing agent. So this further supports the thought process that these infections may have actually been acquired in the hospital period and only emerged as an infection after discharge. And so what aspects of your study and its findings are most relevant to the itchy readers? So the study suggests that the risk of healthcare-associated infections does not end with the discharge state, and that further surveillance is warranted post-discharge for many infection types, especially urinary tract infections. Our study does not conclusively attribute that these infections are truly acquired in the hospital period. However, there's enough evidence to warrant further investigation in this area. And so you just touched on this a little bit, but can you talk more about the limitations of your study and any future uh, research questions that it raised that you'd like to see investigated? 
So because the study was not prospective in nature, we were not able to conclusively identify when patients may have acquired a new strain of urinary pathogen. Thus, we cannot conclusively state that these infections were acquired in the hospital setting. However, because of the incidence of urinary tract infections that we observed, it does warrant further investigation, and the concept that the risk would not end with discharge follows what we would logically assume of the underlying infectious process. So I think that our group is interested in performing additional study in the area of healthcare-associated infections post-discharge to better quantify what the true risk to patients are and how we can better care for the patients and prevent those infections. Furthermore, we're interested in supporting better care in the primary care setting where patients may be treated for infections that were actually healthcare-associated and may warrant different types of empiric therapy than patients who have standard community-onset infections. Great. Well, thanks again, Dr. McGregor, for joining us today on the ICU podcast. Thank you. Joining us now is Dr. Weston Branch Elliman, one of the authors of the article, Real World Effectiveness of Infection Prevention Interventions for Reducing Procedure-Related Cardiac Device Infections, Insights from the Veteran Affairs Clinical Assessment Reporting and Tracking Program. Dr. Branch Elliman, would you introduce yourself to our listeners and then tell us a little bit of the background for this study? Absolutely. So um, it's nice to talk to everybody. My name is Weston Branch Elliman, and I am an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and I'm a faculty and clinician and investigator at VA Boston Healthcare System, and also affiliated with VA Boston Choir, which is our um, implementation and outcome center here in Boston. So the reason we decided to embark upon this study is we had sort of noticed that interventions known to be effective in a surgical setting were being directly applied to non-surgical settings where care is increasingly provided. So as we've developed more and more advanced procedures, more and more care is moving out of the inpatient setting and out of traditional operating rooms and into procedural settings. Yet we sort of realized that there wasn't that much known about how well these practices, which are very evidence-based in the operating room, translated to some of these other areas, which may not have the same resource availability, the same patient mix, and the same training of the providers who are actually doing the procedures. So one of our big questions going in was, are the interventions that are effective in the operating room, particularly in cardiac surgery, as effective in the cardiac device implantation population. Um, As you know, cardiac devices are implanted in the electrophysiology lab, while a procedural area is not actually an operating room, and they don't have the same resources in terms of a preoperative area and a postoperative area. And so are the same interventions effective was one of our questions. We also knew from earlier work that some abnormal antimicrobial use patterns were common in the electrophysiology lab, and one of our goals was to examine the effectiveness of post-procedural prophylaxis in the cardiac device population. We knew from both cohort studies and from survey studies that over 50% of the time, post-procedural antibiotics are administered for prevention of infections. And 
knowing what we know from surgery, we felt very strongly that these antimicrobials were likely just wasteful and not actually helping anyone. However, we found when we approached electrophysiologists that there was a lot of pushback to the idea of stopping these post-procedural antibiotics and that this, these practices were very heavily ingrained. So another aim was to measure how effective the post-procedural antibiotics were to see if we could give them some higher level evidence that maybe this is an ineffective practice that could be stopped. We also had done an earlier study looking at the association of post-procedural antibiotics and post-operative harms and found that rates of C. difficile were increased in patients who received prolonged post-procedural antibiotics and that there was a higher rate of acute kidney injuries in patients who had received vancomycin-containing regimens. So we were also very interested in the antimicrobial stewardship and antimicrobial prophylaxis aspects of these questions. And so tell us a little bit about what you did in this study and what you found. So for this study, we took the cohort of patients who are entered into the VA Clinical Assessment Reporting and Tracking um, Electrophysiology Program within the VA. The CART-EP program is a basically a, an automated system that when somebody undergoes a cardiac device procedure within the VA, the provider can elect to enter the person into this program. And then once they're entered into the program, that data can be linked with other national data within the VA to identify things like laboratory, repeat office visits, and antimicrobial use. So we started out with this cohort of patients who we knew had cardiac device procedures, but I will note that it was a subset. It wasn't all the patients in the VA who had cardiac device procedures, just a subset. And we did a manual chart review of this sample to look for things like what antimicrobial prophylaxis they received, how long they received it, whether or not they got a cardiac device infection, and then we also looked at some other common infection prevention interventions like skin cleaning, did they have a shower, those sorts of questions, and we pulled those manually. We then looked at, in the patients who did and did not get infections, what the effectiveness of these various infection interventions was. And can you talk a little bit about your findings? Absolutely. So the major thing that we found was that I, I think the most surprising thing that we found, at least initially, although I think we have some answers to back this up now, is that beta-lactams were really superior agents for prophylaxis when compared to vancomycin. And that was a little bit surprising. We thought that given the, some of the data on combination regimens and vancomycin and cardiac surgery, we thought that they were likely to be equivalent. But we really found that cafazolin was superior in the setting. And I'll come back in a second to subsequent work I did with Marin Schweitzer that I think helps to explain the answer why. We also found that post-procedural antibiotics were completely ineffective. They did not reduce rates of infection. And so correlated with our earlier work in itchy, we have demonstrated that not only do post-operative antibiotics not improve outcomes, they actually worsen them. And so we're hoping that this, in, com in combination with a recently published randomized controlled trial called the PADIT trial, will really encourage electrophysiologists to adopt evidence-based practices and to reduce inappropriate antimicrobial use. And those are sort of the study main findings. There were also some other minor interventions that were effective, but I think the, the, the two biggest take-home points were that cafazolin really was the superior agent in this population, independent of MRSA status, 
and that post-procedural antibiotics did not improve outcomes, but prior work demonstrates that they do improve harms. And that's what I really hope people take away from the study. And so you mentioned some follow-up work that you did on this study that was also published in Itchy. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Absolutely. So one open question has really been, we, we found in another study that vancomycin plus a beta-lactam was effective for reducing surgical site infections for cardiac surgeries, but we didn't find the same finding for other surgeries. And so this has sort of been a mystery to us about why why would this intervention be particularly effective in cardiac surgery, not other surgeries? Was it an issue of location? So because MRSA tends to colonize the nose, was it an issue of respiratory tract exposure? Was it an issue of something else like implementation? So kind of in, the, in parallel to this, we were doing some qualitative work. And in speaking to the electrophysiologist, what we found was that a big, a big challenge in the electrophysiology lab is that a lot of the patients are unstable and unplanned, and that those patients don't undergo the same processes necessarily as the stable patients. Another challenge in the electrophysiology lab was lack of a place where vancomycin could actually be administered. So because they share their preoperative area with other procedural specialties like interventional radiology, interventional cardiology, and others, they have very, very limited space. And of course, vancomycin infusions take a lot longer than cefazolin infusions. So in talking to the electrophysiologist, what we found was that the vancomycin was being administered either at the time of incision or even after the incision. And obviously, we know from surgery that the vancomycin really needs to go in before the incision, not after the incision. So that's really going to lim limit the effectiveness. So I think it's a good example of the challenges in taking interventions that are effective in surgery and translating them to procedural areas. They don't have the same resources. They don't have the same environment of care. And so interventions that may work in one setting where there is a standard pre-op area where there are nurses who are trained who can give vancomycin is very different than taking that same intervention and trying to implement it somewhere else. Another challenge that we found, and this relates to the stable versus the unstable patients, is that a lot of times in both electrophysiology and cardiac device procedures and in cardiac surgery, unstable patients are just whisked off immediately to the procedural area or to the, to the operating room. And so there really isn't time to do a lot of these complex procedures that are complex infection prevention interventions that we know are effective. And so a lot of times you know, somebody comes in, they're having a heart attack, um, and then after the heart attack, they get a cardiac cath. And after the cardiac cath, it's found that they need to go urgently or emergently to get open heart surgery. Those patients, obviously, there isn't time to do MRSA screening. There isn't time to do a MRSA decolonization protocol. And so my kind of working theory is that part of the reason combination prophylaxis was effective in cardiac surgery but not in other surgeries like orthopedic surgery is that you have a higher mix of unstable and critically ill patients who don't have the luxury of time for getting these more complex interventions. And you, you sort of see a similar challenge in electrophysiology where the stable patients come to the outpatient setting, they can get a whole bundle of care, but the unstable patients kind of come in and people do what they can, but their options are really limited.
And lastly, do you have any future uh, research plans related to this study? So we're trying to build on this research in a couple of ways. First, we talked to some electrophysiologists about how they've selected their practices and how these practices have been adapted locally. Because one thing we found is that you know every procedural area in every hospital is really different. And so we're learning that it's important to develop processes and protocols that work for the place where we're trying to implement them. And our hope is that we will be able to develop in parallel a an infection prevention intervention and hopefully an automated quality monitoring system that we can use in the electrophysiology lab which as I said is a little bit different than traditional operating rooms and our hope is that as we begin to figure out how to implement these interventions in one procedural area we can then begin to adapt and adopt things in other procedural areas that may also serve as practice islands um, in the healthcare system and our hope is that as we begin to roll these things out, we can slowly begin to reach a broader audience. In the past, most care was provided on the, in the inpatient setting, but increasingly patients are outpatients. And so these interventions and almost all infection prevention and antimicrobial stewardship has really been directed at inpatients, even though the majority of patients are actually outpatients. And so our hope is that we can begin to develop programs and implement programs that help the wider population that are not inpatients. Great. Well, thanks again, Dr. Branch Elliman, for speaking with us today on the Itchy Podcast. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I hope that it was helpful and I'm excited to move forward with this research. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Jackson Masuza, one of the authors of the article, Implementation of a Clostridioides Difficile Prevention Bundle, Understanding Common, Unique, and Conflicting Work System Barriers and Facilitators for Subprocess Design. Dr. Masuza, before we get started, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, my name is Jackson Masuza. I'm a research health scientist at the Madison VA Hospital. I do a lot of research related to infection prevention applying implementation science methods and human factors engineering methods. Great. Well, thanks for joining us today. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this study and uh, what you did and what you found? Yeah, the, the whole goal of our research is, is to reduce clostridium difficile infection, which is associated with increased morbidity and mortality and increased length of hospital stay. And it's very costly to the U.S. healthcare system. And so there is uh, concerted efforts to uh, make sure that we come up with interventions that can be useful to prevent Clostridium difficile infection. So based off that, the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology and Infectious Disease Society of America have recommended use of bundled interventions to prevent multi-drug resistant organisms, including Clostridium difficile infection. For this study specifically, we set out to uh, assess bundles, uh, the five components of a CDI prevention bundle, which we refer to as sub-processes. They include diagnostic testing, empiric isolation of patients, suspected health CDI, contact isolation for those with confirmed CDI, hand hygiene, and environmental disinfection. In this study, we aimed to answer the question, what must be considered when designing sub-processes? as part of an overall CDI prevention bundle when multiple stakeholders 
are involved. So this was a qualitative study where we conducted focus groups of environmental services staff, physicians, nurses, to assess their perspectives on Clostridium difficile infection prevention bundle. And we used human factors methods and we used a model called the Systems Engineering Initiative for Patient Safety, commonly abbreviated as the SIPS model. This model has been used widely in infection prevention and for patient safety promotion in general. Focuses on five elements of the work system, which include the person, which is the individuals who do the work, the tasks, the work that gets done, tools and technologies, the equipment needed to do the work, physical environment, the physical space within which the work happens, as well as the organization conditions that influence the completion of tasks. These elements of the SIFS model interact to influence processes and outcomes. And so for this study, essentially we aim to determine common, unique, and conflicting factors across stakeholder groups and sub-processes of the CDI bundle. So our findings showed that common work system barriers included Number one, inconsistencies in the knowledge and practice of CDI management procedures. For example, there was discordancy about when isolation of patients suspected with CDI should happen or when a CDI test should be ordered. And number two, there was increased workload, essentially related to contact precautions, poor setup of aspects of the physical environment. For example, inconvenient location of sinks, which could affect hand hygiene compliance. And number four was inconsistencies in CDI documentation. The other barriers were the unique ones and the unique facilitators. And these were mainly related to the specific activities performed by the stakeholder group. For example, the algorithmic approaches used by physicians facilitated timely diagnosis of CDI, as well as the ability of nurses to place CDI diagnostic test uh, independent of physicians this made the diagnosis of CDI much faster and much easier on the, on the units that we worked with. And finally, the conflicting barriers were related to opposing objectives. One example that stood out was when clinicians needed rapid placement of a patient in a room while environmental services staff needed more time to clean it, disinfect it, and do a good job with the terminal cleaning. So we were able to identify factors that were unique for particular groups of stakeholders, as well as uh, those that conflicted between stakeholders, and then those that were common across all the three groups of stakeholders. And so what aspects of your findings would you say are the most relevant to itchy readers? I think uh, what is most relevant to itchy readers, uh, some of the factors that we saw that stood out to be conflicting between uh, the different stakeholder groups because the, the, the common factors are really things that, that, that are easier to deal with that, that we are aware about. But, but some of the conflicting outcomes, for example, when a, a clinician wants to use the room and it is still being cleaned, those are some of the things that we actually don't think about when you are implementing interventions and yet they require proper communication, for example, between the physician groups, as well as the, the other stakeholders involved, to ensure that there is smooth flow of patient care, as well as placing patients in safe places. And can you talk about any future research questions that your study raised, or any plans that you have to investigate those questions? 
Yeah, I'll start out by mentioning that I'm actually a part of a research team that is led uh, by Dr. Nasia Safta at the Department of Medicine in Madison, Wisconsin, and then Madison VA. The study I described above was a single site study. And so it raises questions of uh, what happens when this is done uh, at a larger scale, moving away from just a single site. And because of that, we are currently conducting a similar study at 10 VA acute care sites with varying rates of CDI. And the goal of this multi-site study is to examine CDI prevention practices using a systems engineering approach. And we want to be able to correlate uh, these practices with CDI rates in the units that, that we'll be working with. And this will enable us to, among other aims, to identify practices that facilitate or impede CDI band implementation at these sites. And these findings will help uh, in designing targeted future interventions to prevent CDI at other sites. Great. Well, we'll definitely look forward to seeing the results of that study in the future. Thanks again, Dr. Mazuga, for speaking with us today on the Itchy Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Our last guest today is Kyle Rizzo, one of the authors of the article, Reduction in Clostridium Difficile Infection Rates Following a Multi-Facility Prevention Initiative in Orange County, California, a Controlled Interrupted Time Series Evaluation. Kyle, would you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit of the background for this study? Absolutely. Uh, so thanks so much for featuring our study on the podcast. We're really excited to be here today. So my name is Kyle Rizzo, and I'm a research scientist at the California Department of Public Health. And our study evaluated the impact of a public health initiative focused on preventing C. difficile infections, or CDI for short, in hospitals and healthcare facilities in Orange County, California. And what we really tried to do was quantify the efforts of the hospitals that participated in the Orange County CDI Prevention Collaborative, so we really want to acknowledge their participation and hard work first. Uh, back in 2014, our team at CDPH found that CDI incidence was actually elevated in Orange County compared with the rest of the state. So knowing this, my co-authors Aaron Garcia and Dr. Aaron Epson, along with Dr. Matt Zahn from the Orange County Healthcare Agency, initiated the CDI Prevention Collaborative in June 2015. And we recruited every hospital and skilled nursing facility in Orange County to join. And since this was a public health initiative, there weren't any restrictions on which facilities could or could not participate. And so this also means that uh, participation in the collaborative wasn't random, but I'll touch more on that later. Uh, and as far as the main goal for the collaborative, we wanted to reduce CDI incidents in the region through a coordinated effort that involved hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, and public health. And can you tell us a little bit more about what you did in this study and what you found? Definitely. Uh, so the collaborative was implemented in three main ways. Uh, first, we held regular in-person learning and discussion sessions that uh, reviewed everything from best practices in CDI prevention and antimicrobial stewardship to sharing information between healthcare facilities about their experiences regarding what worked and also what didn't work in their facilities. Secondly, uh, the collaborative uh, had our infection preventionists from the Healthcare Associated Infections Program at CDPH actually go out and visit each hospital and skilled nursing facility that participated to assess an array of different practices. And our IPs then made standardized recommendations for improvement based on these observations. 
And then thirdly, the collaborative sought to improve uh, communication between healthcare facilities in Orange County regarding the transfer of patients either infected or colonized with C. diff. And at this point uh, in the collaborative, this was actually implemented countywide uh, by the Orange County, County Healthcare Agency. So regardless of whether or not healthcare facilities were actually participating in the CDI collaborative. So ultimately, if a patient had C. diff, the goal was to communicate that when the patient was being transferred to another facility so that the next team could ensure that the, the appropriate precautions were in place. Um, but the focus of our paper was to then actually evaluate the effects of the CDI collaborative on rates of both hospital onset CDI as well as community onset CDI among Orange County hospitals. And ideally, the hospital onset and community onset rates would decline after we implemented this initiative, so that was generally our, our main hypothesis. And so in order to look at this, we used a type of quasi-experimental method called the Controlled Interrupted Time Series Design. And this particular type of study design supports our ability to make causal inferences about the effects of the collaborative. And we used hospitals from three counties in the San Francisco Bay Area to serve as comparators in our evaluation. And we chose hospitals from the Bay Area because of their geographic separation from the initiative down in Orange County. Uh, and I should note that all of the data used in our analysis were reported by hospitals to the California Department of Public Health via the National Healthcare Safety Network, or NHSN. Um, and so then to assess if there were any changes in these CDI rates, we developed two generalized linear mixed models to perform segmented regression. The first model analyzed hospital onset CDI rates, which we, uh, and then we developed a separate model uh, to actually analyze the community onset CDI rates. And for both of the models, we controlled relevant confounders, including covariates such as CDI test type. And this is obviously a, a really important covariate, and if hospitals change their CDI testing methods over time, because we did have 48 months worth of data during our study, those changes were actually captured in, in our models as they were updated in NHSN. And actually, I really want to acknowledge our co-author, Dr. Sarah Yee, at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as she was instrumental in helping our team refine these models during the analysis. Okay, so what did we find? <laughs> uh, we observed a significant 4% per month decrease in hospital onset CDI rates among our collaborative participant hospitals during the follow-up period compared with baseline. And in evaluating the impact of the collaborative, we observed a significant 3% per month decrease in hospital onset rates among the participants when compared directly to those San Francisco Bay Area hospitals. And we also did not see any analogous declines in hospital onset CDI rates in the Bay Area hospitals. We also observed a significant 2% per month decline in community onset CDI rates across all Orange County hospitals, but the change in community onset CDI was not actually statistically different from the Bay Area hospitals this time around. Uh, nonetheless, these findings provide evidence that the implementation of this coordinated regional prevention initiative helps reduce CDI incidents in Orange County hospitals. And so what aspects of your findings would you say are the most relevant to the itchy readers? Well, the evidence that CDI prevention is most effective when it is addressed throughout a region and throughout a healthcare network is continuing to grow, and I think the results from our study further support this paradigm. We know CDI can occur across multiple healthcare settings when patients are exposed to the organism and antibiotics, and so we hope itchy readers are working in, that are working in hospitals and healthcare facilities will actually consider coordinating their CDI prevention efforts in a way that engages their local health departments and regional healthcare facility referral networks in order to have the greatest impact on preventing CDI. And lastly, can you talk a little bit about the limitations of this study and any future research questions that it raised that you plan to investigate or that you'd like to see investigated? 
Definitely. Uh, so I kind of alluded to this in the beginning, but participation in the collaborative was completely open and we did not randomly select our participant or comparator hospitals. And we know that rates of hospital onset CDI were increasing significantly during the baseline period in our Orange County participant hospitals. So this may have had something to do with their choice to participate and also adhere to the prevention strategies that we recommended. Uh, we also can't account for any of the co-interventions unrelated to the collaborative that may have also reduced CDI incidents in Orange County hospitals uh, that occurred during the same time frame as the collaborative. And one example, we had a participant hospital reported um, a diagnostic stewardship intervention, which was not associated with the CDI prevention collaborative, actually reduced hospital onset CDI incidents within their facility. So having a better understanding of why hospitals did or did not participate in the collaborative, as well as uh, their other CDI prevention initiatives uh, that they were embarking upon, could be worth exploring moving forward, especially to try to help engage uh, hospitals and healthcare facilities moving forward. Uh, and in terms of it, uh, future work, our team at CDPH has implemented five other multi-facility prevention initiatives in different regions of California since wrapping up the Orange County CDI Collaborative in June of 2016. And one of these initiatives was actually uh, also focused on preventing CDI. So we hope to per perform a similar type of study uh, and, and using a similar type of design to evaluate the effects of that effort. So stay tuned for more. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll definitely look forward to seeing the results of those initiatives soon. Thanks again, Kyle, for speaking with us today on the Itchy Podcast. No problem. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This concludes Episode 9 of the Itchy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and thanks for listening.